Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Bonnie Christian about the decline of institutional trust in our society. Now, maybe that sounds boring to you, but it shouldn't. The decline of institutional trust has serious consequences for all of us. In Bonnie's book, Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis, Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community, she dives into why we are losing trust in our institutions, specifically media institutions. Now, she comes with a really interesting perspective on that issue because she comes to us as an insider, as someone who's worked for a variety of media outlets, including some Christian media outlets. So we'll get into why Christian media companies are fracturing and reflecting the great fracture that's happened nationally. Unlike most people who can only tell you about the problems, Bonnie will leave us with some real practical ways that we can rebuild trust. In other words, she doesn't just have her finger on the problem, but she also has some significant ideas of how we can find solutions to the problems we face. If you want to go deeper on institutions, you might want to go back and listen to a conversation I had with Yuval Levin. That episode was released in July of 2022. Now, here's some good news for you. Whatever's wrong with my voice today wasn't a problem when I had the conversation with Bonnie. So you don't have to bear with me sounding absolutely horrible. So without further ado, let's jump into our conversation with Bonnie Christian. Bonnie Christian, welcome to Truth Over Tribe. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really loved your book, Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis, Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community. And I just say that anybody who likes this podcast, likes what Patrick and I are doing on Truth Over Tribe, will also really like your book. Let's start here. You're a journalist. How'd you get into that field? What do you like being about a journalist? Where have you worked as a journalist? Well, so I got into it. I knew fairly young that I was interested in getting into journalism. I I was always interested in writing. And I think by high school, I had decided I was interested in sort of the news side of things. I was very into like old copies of Time and Newsweek. And then for a while, I had a, a world magazine phase. And so in college, I majored in political science and I ended up running the campus paper And then I spent a few years in the D.C. area after school working at some political nonprofits doing sort of like comms work. And it was writing work, but it wasn't journalism. It wasn't really about ideas. And that was what I was interested in doing. And so that was when I decided that I I needed to get another degree to do the kind of writing that I really wanted to do. Less like come to our event and more 
considering some more substantive things. And so I went to seminary in Minnesota. And it was while I was in school that I started freelancing on a regular basis and building up a portfolio. And so for a long time, my home base was an outlet called The Week, but I left there this past summer, coming up on a year now, and I'm freelancing currently. And so among other things, I have a column at Christianity Today. I work with a foreign policy think tank called Defense Priorities, doing op-eds and a weekly newsletter for them. And then I'm also writing regularly at Reason Magazine and the Daily Beast. And I do some one-offs at, at other outlets as the opportunity presents itself. And most of what I do and have done throughout my career is opinion work. So I am making arguments, trying to get people to agree with me. I'm not like the reporter out there pounding the pavement most of the time. So based on where you've worked, I'm guessing you're a little bit more libertarian leaning. Is that fair? I mean, Reason Magazine is a strong libertarian piece. So is that kind of where you're coming from? Um, Yeah, I'm a libertarian pretty consistently. There's maybe a couple places where... I might have some quibbles, but not many. Yeah. So kind of straight down the line, you come from a libertarian perspective. And that's great. It's just good to know where people are coming from. Now, the title of your book is Untrustworthy. And so let's just start there. Who has proven untrustworthy? In other words, who doesn't trust who? <laughs> it might be easier to answer who does trust who <laughs> at this point. I think it's not really leveling an accusation of untrustworthiness at any particular actor as opposed to, you know, like some other group of people so much as saying there's a general atmosphere of distrust and uncertainty. Just that feeling that I think a lot of us have experienced of just not knowing who is reliable, who is telling you the truth, who is serving some interest other than accuracy. And so it's sort of a diagnosis of a whole like atmosphere that we've encountered as opposed to a specific, you know, these are the untrustworthy folks that we need to reject. It really is true, though. I mean, trust seems like at an all-time low. We don't trust institutions. There's not many people that the American populace as a group has confidence in. You know, it's not the government. It's not the Supreme Court. It's not the media. It's not the military. It's not the police. It's nothing. What are the consequences that you see? The less we trust our institutions, the less we trust each other. What are some of the consequences of that that we're experiencing? I mean, I think sort of the consequence is this pervasive sense of polarization, of animosity, of uncertainty that we've had, especially in the political realm for the past few years. And it happens, I think, at a smaller scale. And it's not something that just started in, you know, the last five or 10 years, but we see it perhaps most vividly play out there. For a lot of us, I think there are also much more intimate effects, like the sort of big picture loss of trust that we experience at that institutional or societal scale, it also trickles down in and affects us in our congregations, in our family relationships with our friends. And so I think it is at once a very big problem and for many people, a very personal problem at the same time. Yeah. I, as a pastor of a church, recognize that people trust churches, people trust pastors, much less than they would have 10, 20 years ago, much less longer in the past. And it really makes it hard to lead an organization when people don't have this predisposition to trust what you say, but view everything through a lens of suspicion. So why has this breakdown of trust occurred? Is it can we kind of trace it back to a few things or a couple major things that we can say, here's why we got in this position that we have declining trust? Yeah, it's difficult to disentangle, I think, because on the one hand, you do have some contributing factors that are 
not necessarily negative, right? So for example, I would say, and then as libertarian, this won't surprise you. I would say that like a certain amount of healthy skepticism of government is like a really good thing, a really good aspect of American politics and that we don't want to be like blindly trusting, right? And so then that kind of undercurrent of skepticism has always been a part of American public life. And similarly, like with churches, you know, you can point to a lot of big name scandals and say, yeah, I understand why people aren't willing to sort of submit to church authority the way that they used to. I understand what they're afraid of there. And so there are sort of like those reasonable, rational elements of this. But on the other hand, I would point to, in a more negative sense, I would point to the way that we have changed how, and especially how often we encounter, it's not just the news, but sort of like public life and really contentious, difficult issues where we disagree with one another and accounts of wrongdoing in high places. And a lot of that does have to do with the media environment, not just formal traditional media, but digital and social media and the way that over the past 20, 30 years, we have massively increased the amount of information, the amount of content coming our way day in and day out. You know, we take every spare five minutes we have to pull out our phones and start reading something and it's just overwhelming. And it's impossible, I think, even for someone who is thoughtful and well-informed and well-intentioned to sort through and discern the factuality, the truthfulness of that level of information coming their way. And so that encourages an attitude of uncertainty, an attitude of not being willing to commit, not being willing to trust, because you can't possibly process all of that data. And that attitude, I think, trickles down into how we treat each other as well. And again, some of it feels quite rational. Some of it is quite rational. But when you add it all together with this constant and ongoing onslaught of confusion, then we end up in a pretty unfortunate place. I think when the average person hears we have access to more information, we kind of see that as an unalloyed good. You know, I mean, great, shouldn't people have all the information they want and need? But ironically, it doesn't work that way, does it? I mean, I guess it could, but in theory, but when you get run down practical life, sometimes more information makes us trust institutions less. So I think in your book, you mentioned a guy named Martin Gurry who wrote a book called The Revolt of the Public. And in that book, I came across this statistic that the amount of information that the public had before the year 2000, then doubled the next year between 2000 and 2001, and then doubled again between 2001 and 2002. So just think 2000 years of history, all the information, all of a sudden, 100% increase in just one year, and then another increase of that size in the next year. So what are the effects of having too much information? Why could that ever be a bad thing for people to be exposed to too much information? Yeah, I certainly recall thinking about this in a much more optimistic sense, right? Like even relatively recently, thinking back to like, I don't know, 2008, 2012, those elections, it was like, oh, it's so great. We're going to be better informed voters. We're going to have so much more access to information. It's going to be so good. The reason why it doesn't necessarily work out that way is well, I point to two things. One is the issue of quality, right? Like what is all that new information. Some of it is like garbage memes on Facebook. Like that's included in that count. Right. You're not necessarily better for having some of that. And of course we can all think of cases where, you know, information was withheld that should not have been where we did need more information and lack of information was the problem. But just because we can think of those cases doesn't mean that 
every piece of information that is coming to us is high quality and is going to improve things for us to have it. And then the other aspect, of course, is quantity, which I've already touched on. You know, we have a finite number of hours in the day. We have a finite amount of expertise. You can only know so much. You can only be a well-informed judge of so many pieces of information. And so when you keep on encountering more and more information that you have, you've run out of capacity to process it. You don't have any context for it. You don't have any background knowledge. At that point, more information is not necessarily better for you. And again, a lot of it is going to be low quality. And so if you aren't able to sort of um, assess it well, well, then you have a large quantity of bad information coming your way. And that's, I don't think, better than just doing without it. Isn't it true that to some extent, when the public got all this information, they realized that maybe the institutions that they had had a high degree of trust in had maybe been betraying them? So like just for example, in history, you had some sort of deal, I guess, between the mainstream media, which was just the press at the time, and the presidency so that the public didn't know that FDR was in a wheelchair and had polio. They didn't know about the affairs that JFK had in the White House. Now, the press knew about them, but the press sat on those stories. They didn't publicize them. And now, I mean, it would be a race to get out in front of every other media institution to tell the public about this. So what changed in that dynamic between the government and media? The media is trying to expose everything they can about the government as opposed to having a deal to kind of stay quiet about some things. It's difficult to point to a single cause, right? Like some of what we're seeing there is changing norms about what counts as appropriate public information versus what's someone's private life. Some of it is about changing relationships between the media and the government, more of an adversarial relationship, which I think is a good change. You should want the media scrutinizing the government carefully. In a broader sense, you know, I think there are cases where, as we've learned more, as information has democratized and become more available to the public, We have found out about things that were kept from us that should not have been kept from us. We have found out about institutions making decisions behind closed doors, whether, you know, solo or in cooperation with each other like that. In other cases, and the Martin Gurry book you mentioned talked about this. In other cases, what's happening, I think, is that before we had like, especially social media, but the same degree of public exposure of information debates and processes of dialogue and decision-making would happen behind closed doors. And then the public would get sort of presented with the final product after a certain amount of time of like figuring things out. And the final product might be pretty good because they'd had time to work on it. And so it was easy to look at that and say like, all right, yeah, that makes sense. I respect this institution. Whereas now I think we're more likely to see every little development, every trial and error. And so some of what's going on, I think, is that we in the public tend to conflate that process of trial and error, which is not a bad thing with the more like deliberate concealment of things or actual failures. And so once again, the case is just that we have like a lot more information for good and for ill. And so we see the actual malfeasance, we see the honest mistakes, we see things that are still in process that we really would prefer to be finished already, but they're not finished already. And that all adds up to just like a lot of uncertainty and continuation of the same mistrust. So we've talked a little bit about 
the anti-institutional era that we're in. And it seems like that's at least part of the reason that the press or anyone, it's not just media, any person is quick to turn on the institution. In other words, instead of kind of having this assumed level of trust, we now have a assumed level of distrust or mistrust. And therefore, we are quick to turn on our institutions. So do you think our institutions have proven untrustworthy? Like when Dr. Fauci talks about having a noble lie. Does something like that as a journalist concern you or do you kind of see it from his perspective that he had good motives, at least in his mind he did, so therefore it was okay to tell the people a noble lie? In other words, are the institutions, have they lost trust because they've proven themselves untrustworthy like your book is titled or have we been unfair and held them to a standard that is unrealistic? I mean, I think it's a little of both in the case you're talking about the most egregious example that I remember and that I think I talk about in the book was Dr. Fauci had an interview, I believe, with the New York Times where he was talking about herd immunity. And he essentially said that the estimates that he gave for herd immunity for COVID, he had nudged them up as he saw public adoption of the vaccines and thought, you know, I can get more people to take the vaccines if I nudge this number higher. And he said publicly, essentially, that these numbers he was giving were not tied to, you know, a hard scientific data, but it was significantly a PR exercise. That kind of thing, I think, is terrible and destructive of public trust. And it continues to be bizarre to me that to tell that to a journalist, you know, on the record and didn't understand how that would be received. I think that's an excellent example of the fact that you can have expertise in your given field and be really awful at public relations and understanding, <laughs> you know, how the public will hear the things that you're saying and the way that we have allowed social media and also traditional mass media to turn so many people who do have legitimate subject expertise to ask them to become public commentators as well. That was a mistake. And I think we need to scale that back because I assume he has, you know, far greater infectious disease knowledge than I do. Right. But if he had, you know, said to me or said to any number of people, here's what I'm going to tell this journalist, a lot of people could have said, no, no, you are not doing what you think you're doing by saying that in public. So these are separate things. I do not think that public officials, people in elite positions like that, people leading institutions like that should be telling noble lies to the public. I also think, though, on the subject of public reactions, there is sometimes a case perhaps for some discretion while you're still in process on things, right? Like sort of returning to that older model of not broadcasting every small step you're taking on the way to figuring something out. And I think if we are going to broadcasting those intermediate steps that are legitimately difficult for non-experts in the public to understand because we just, you know, everybody can't know about everything. It seems like that's where we've landed on just like airing a lot of this stuff in these internal conversations in public. Then I think as the public, we do need to not tolerate noble lies, but develop some grace for, again, like legitimate processes of trial and error. And there's a big difference between doing what Fauci did in that case, saying like, yeah, I told a noble lie because I thought I could do it versus an expert coming to the public and saying, I thought this before, I was wrong. I think this now. Um, that kind of demonstration of growth and humility, I think is not something the public should punish, but a lot of times we tend to conflate those two things. Yeah, you, know, you said a lot of really good things there. I mean, if I hear you right, you're saying that 
perhaps our public officials, like a Dr. Fauci, but of course not only him, need to do fewer interviews, need to be exposed <laughs> to the media and the questions as much as he was. And maybe we need to have a spokesperson, just like the president has a spokesperson, the State Department has a spokesperson. Maybe they needed a spokesperson filling that role instead of putting him out there because his expertise is not in communication. But I also hear you saying that we need our public officials to realize the moment we're living in and to, if they're going to be out there, at least to be transparent and honest and humble. If I recall correctly, he said that we shouldn't wear masks and then we should. And when asked why the switch, he said, well, that was because I wanted the health professionals to be able to get the high quality masks. So I told people not to go out and buy masks. They didn't need them. Well, okay, but now we don't trust you because now we think that you will tell us whether it's a noble lie or something for your own agenda. If you would have just said, hey, look, everybody, we need the health officials to have this or the health professionals to have this first, then you could have come back and said, now we need you to have them. In other words, we have an order here. So it sounds like you're saying that, one, be wiser about the moment you live in and therefore be more transparent if you're going to be out there talking to people. So still in that anti-institutional moment, have you read Prince Harry's book, the one called Spare? I have not. You haven't? You should. Why haven't you read it? Have you read it? I have. Huh. Yeah, I think it's tells... like part of pastoral duties. Or... <laughs> well, we did a podcast. Patrick and I did a podcast. On it. I think it tells us a lot about our cultural moment. Hmm. So let me ask you this. I don't know. It's odd to me that Prince Harry has become kind of a hero. I mean, think about the moment we live in. He's a white man who is extremely wealthy, who got that wealth from a colonial superpower, who was in the military and kind of brags about killing these Afghanis. He dressed up as a Nazi for a Halloween costume party, you know, and just seems like there's a lot of things in this day that you would think he'd been rejected, but he hasn't. Somehow he's been embraced, has big podcast deals, book deals, TV deals. Do you have any thoughts on why is it that Prince Harry has been accepted so much when it seems like everything about him doesn't fit the moment we live in? Mm. I mean, I think a lot of it is a pretty entertaining redemption arc. Mm. Yeah. A lot of the choices that he's made you know, if you start from the position that some of that personal history and personal accidents of birth are negative or objectionable things, a lot of the recent choices he's made have been rejecting those. And so that's a big, fun redemption arc for us to consume. I mean, I don't know. I think that I would question how much he has been accepted. Obviously, there's a lot of interest. He's obviously been paid a lot of money for doing fairly little work. The book <laughs> sold a lot of copies. Yes. Right. But is he respected? Is he well regarded? I don't know that he is. Most of the media coverage I've read, especially in more elite outlets, has been pretty critical of him. Yeah. I that's mean fair. the Atlantic's articles were scathing. I think it's fair to say that the more elite, highbrow take on him is probably different than the populist take. Now, mm -hmm. the average person is the one who, I guess, is listening to the podcast or buying the book or whatever. I think he's set book sales records, you know, crushed former President Obama's first day record on book sales. So it's done quite well. And I think I agree mm -hmm. with you, if I understand you right, that the reason that he can get away with being a white rich male from a colonial power who dresses up as Nazi is because he has turned against the institution, 
right? The institution of the monarchy, he's turned against that and accused them of racism and all these other things. And so in a sense, he's fed into the anti-institutional moment that we're in. At least that's my guess. I mean, to a degree, but I also think that people who are buying his book, if they went on a trip to England, would 100% tour Buckingham Palace and buy Queen memorabilia. Like, 100%. They may appreciate sort of the dramatic tension of this, you know, man bites dog story, right? But I don't think they actually want the monarchy to go away. I think they like it. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together, that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. Let's get into your area that you're an expert on, you've worked in for years, and that's media. I think that one of the reasons people have lost trust in media is attributable to the business model. So can you just help us understand how does media make money, like say newspapers, magazines, and how has that changed over the years? Significantly, they don't make money now. (laughs) This is something that I talk about at some length in the book and have talked about a lot at, you know, different podcasts and speaking engagements connected to untrustworthy. Cause I think it's something that's kind of opaque if you're outside the media industry. So I'm especially speaking about print media here. I think it's a bit different for broadcast, but print media especially used to make a lot of money from advertising. Even I'm old enough to remember like looking at classified since we're used to buy cars from people, find jobs, Everything was through the classifieds and you had to pay for that. And that made money. And if particularly if we're thinking about like a local newspaper, there's maybe only one or two of them that you have a a certain monopoly on that ads market because where else are you going to advertise? And so then, you know, Craigslist comes along and Facebook marketplace comes along and Google ads and Facebook ads. And suddenly there's all these other places to advertise. And at the individual level where we're thinking about like classifieds, it's free. It's free to post on Craigslist. It's free to post on Facebook marketplace. And the newspaper can't compete with that. And at the same time, when content starts moving online, the other big source of revenue in the past, which was subscriptions, people don't want to pay subscriptions for things that are online. Now, maybe this is starting to change with sort of like the rise of the Substack model, but it doesn't seem to work for all kinds of content, at least not yet. 
And even with that existing, I think a lot of us still default to when we come across something that's not on someone's like personal Substack, when we come across an article online, we feel as if we have sort of like a right to it. Like, how dare you paywall me? Like, I should be able to see this. It's online. Why can't I see this? And of course, that's not how we thought about physical papers, physical magazines in the past. You didn't think that you had a right to take that paper from the newsstand and carry it home with you. You had to pay your 50 cents or whatever. So those two losses of income are enormous. Like it's difficult to overstate the big difference that has made. Something like a quarter of newsroom jobs in this country went away between 2008 and 2021, if I remember correctly. And there's just in the past couple of months, there's been another big round of layoffs at major media companies. And so this question of, okay, we can't rely on ads the way that we used to. We can't get people to subscribe the way that we used to. What do we do? Where does the money come from? Like that is a huge looming question for the whole industry. It's something that is still in the process of being figured out. And in the meantime, it has, you know, as this outlets try to keep the doors open, keep the lights on, compromises are made, you know, to try to keep things going. You don't have as many reporters with specialized knowledge. You don't have as much time to spend in many cases on, you know, working on a long in-depth report. The volume of output has to go up because you need more pages to have more ads to eke out some ad revenue. And so it encourages and it really intensifies the competition to get eyeballs on the page. And so that encourages writing, you know, more exciting stories, because if you don't write it, someone else is going to, and you're competing for that precious attention and the money which comes with it. And so there's a lot of tension at this point within the industry between what do we want to be doing as journalists and literally how do we stay open? Yeah, I do think there's a model issue. In other words, it's not about an individual journalist making decisions. It's the way the thing is structured. And I remember growing up and my parents would love to go to garage sales. So they would sit through the paper on Thursday evening and they would go through and they would circle all the garage sales that they wanted to go to. And people who are hosting the garage sale had to pay a certain amount of money to have that posted in the paper. And that's how the paper made money or one big money maker along with subscriptions, like you said. And then once all that disappears, now what do we do? Well, if you're in the newspaper business, you've got to get that through either subscriptions, convincing people to pay for something that's digital, hard to do, like you said, or you have to have ad revenue on your page. Now, you can charge more for that space on your page if you have more clicks, right? So if an article gets clicked once, it makes a lot less than if it's clicked 10 times or 100 times or 1,000 times or a million times or whatever. So I think, I'm curious what your take on this, is now, not because they're good or bad people, just the incentive structures are to write things that get lots of clicks. And that shapes journalism. Like you said, it caused you to write about more stories that you probably know less about. You had less time to study and do them just, you know, just make sense. And you're writing about things, a journalist, not you, are writing about things that get clicks, right? I mean, you could write this great article that you care about, but you know that not that many people are going to be interested in it. Or you could write an article on, I don't know, puppies, and just to be absurd, and you know a lot of people are going to click on that article. So don't you think that has incentivized journalism in a way that has undermined trust? Yes, although it's a qualified yes. I mean, one thing I would say is that that's not the only decision 
that's not the only factor in decisions, right? And it's going to vary wildly by outlet, mm-hmm. the extent to which that is sort of the determining factor on whether an article gets written. So, you know, at one end of the spectrum, you have garbage outlets that will just outright fabricate things because if you are unbound by the limits of truth, you can say whatever you want and you can get tons of clicks. And, you know, there was a story, I think it was in uh, the 2020 election. It was like Pope Francis endorses Donald Trump. It was like the single biggest political story on Facebook. It was completely fabricated, (laughs) but, you know, did huge numbers. I'm sure they got a lot of ad revenue. At the other end of the spectrum, you're going to have outlets that, you know, regard themselves more seriously, that maybe have some sort of like ideological or theological mission that have stronger controlling interests that matter more than just chasing clicks. And so they're going to cover things that they think are important for other reasons. But yeah, it's true. The media is a business like any other business. Mm -hmm. It responds to market pressures like that. That just is what it is. It's not this special thing that operates outside the marketplace. We operate within the marketplace. And just because you're not paying directly with cash, right? Like it's a little bit of an indirect purchase model, but your act of viewing ads on a page is functionally you paying for that content fractions of a penny, but paying. And so, yeah, just like in any other industry, what there is a demand for tends to come in greater supply. Again, there are other factors, but yes, media is affected by supply and demand like everyone else. And so if you're a media institution, we'll just stay with print media, probably pertains to more than that. And you have an audience that has a particular ideological perspective, could be on the left or the right, it doesn't matter really, then I guess it's easier to tell them what they want to hear. Because if you tell them something they don't want to hear, then maybe they cancel their subscription or are less enthusiastic, click on less articles or what have you. That kind of thing idea is called audience capture, where you're captured by the audience and begin to write what they, you know, like I said, want to hear. And I wonder if that's why the media doesn't lose some trust because they start, I don't think intentionally at all. I think most people have great motives, high motives, but they start telling people a narrative and then they get caught doing that. You know, I feel like that just happened a couple of days ago when we're recording this on the first day of March. And just a few days ago, the Department of Energy released a report saying they had low confidence that the COVID virus came out of the lab and Wuhan. And that complemented the FBI report that said they had confidence that it had come from the lab. Well, the New York Times and Washington Post had run stories saying that was a fringe, crazy theory. That's a conspiracy. Glenn Kessler, the fact checker for the Washington Post, had just mocked people as conspiracy theorists who said that. Well, I guess not. I mean, I guess they weren't. So does that mean that Glenn Kessler, the people writing the Times and the Post are bad people? No, but it does mean that it's easier to sell a narrative as opposed to report what you know honestly and fairly like we were asking Dr. Fauci to do. It seems like we're asking our media institutions to do the same thing. Don't be overconfident in what you know. Am I wrong in that? You're a journalist. I think you're going to defend journalists. So, (laughs) In places like the Times and the Post that at least think of themselves as a broad spectrum outlet that is not sort of explicitly serving an ideological faction, like Reason Magazine, I write there sometimes. It's very explicitly like we're libertarians writing for libertarians. The Post and the Times don't think of themselves that way. And so I think they are going to tend to 
get in more trouble and rightly so when they are found to have mishandled something like this along a certain ideological line. That said, I do think it's overstating it a bit to describe it as in most cases, and you know, sure you can find counterexamples, but in most cases to describe it as a deliberate perpetuation of a narrative. But that's also not to say that that never happens. I mean, another recent example that we just heard about was this lawsuit with the voting machines. Mm-hmm. It's a great example. And Fox News. Yeah. And so in that case you had, which, and I could be wrong, but to my knowledge, we haven't had this sort of evidence of like deliberate coordination on the COVID origins thing. But in that case, you had deliberate texts among Fox hosts saying like, you know, we think it's nonsense that the election was rigged, but our audience believes it. And we need to, I think their phrasing was like, respect the audience. Of course, it's not really respecting someone to feed into their delusions, but they didn't want these people to leave for Newsmax or Um, one American news network, whatever the competitors would be that would foster those thoughts if Fox didn't do it. And so, yeah, audience capture definitely happens. But I think it's important to note, like when audience capture is exposed, generally speaking, that's not causing mistrust among that audience, right? Like how many people stopped watching Fox because that story came out? How many people who are devoted Times and Post readers are going to stop reading those outlets because you know, now perhaps there's some stronger evidence that they mishandled the COVID origin story. It's only the people on the other side of the aisle or outside both camps who are mad about it. So the audience capture continues even when it's exposed. And this is a broader issue with this sense of like distrust of the media. People will say like, oh, I'm so skeptical of the media. I don't trust the press, but they have their pet outlets that they trust absolutely. Well, I think you're right. Unfortunately, it's incredibly sad. I do think probably there are people on the margins of Fox in the post times who maybe trust it less. I don't know if they cancel subscriptions or stop watching. And I am afraid you're right that the majority of the viewers and readers of those outlets continue wholeheartedly down them. They rationalize it. We're all good at rationalizing and justifying what we want to believe. Or they just never hear about it. Maybe they never hear about it because Fox doesn't report on itself. And I haven't seen the Times or the Post run a story about how they mishandled it. So that's probably true. Now, some of the effect of all this is Substack, which you mentioned earlier, kind of independent voices. Barry Weiss famously left the New York Times with a scathing letter and started a Substack. Lots of other people, you have a Substack. People can read some of your stuff on. It has a few less subscribers than Barry Weiss's. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's on fire, right? Maybe so, a dozen or two different. <laughs> well, her podcast has a few more listeners than ours too. So yeah. <laughs> you and I are in the same boat. Do you think these independent voices in journalism, that gets good for journalism. It's giving more voices out there, more accountability, different perspectives, gives people opportunity to vote with their feet, their dollars, their eyes, their ears about where they get information. Or do you think it's a net negative? I'd say on balance, I think it's a good thing. Sometimes it ends up a little weird. Like with, you mentioned Barry Weiss specifically with the Twitter files releases where they were given access to internal Twitter documents on the condition that they publish their findings on Twitter first. It's a little strange. Sure. Probably not a deal a traditional outlet would have struck. Does that raise like fundamental questions about the reporting? Maybe not, but it's a little strange. For me, like as a journalist, yeah, I do have a sub stack. 
I'm not going to ever do like a big reported story there because I want another set of eyes on it. I think editorial oversight is important and that like it actually is a good thing to have other people. It's not uncommon to, I think any longstanding writer that you speak to will be able to tell you of a time that an editor saved them from themselves and was like the voice saying like, no, you don't actually want to put that out there in public under your name. And so I think there's a potential, depending on what people are doing in those sort of solo spaces, there's a potential for negatives for the journalists themselves. But yeah, on balance, I think it's a good thing. The one thing and I alluded to this earlier is that it tends to work best for people like Barry, people who are working more in the opinion space and who already have made a name for themselves, who already have big followings. And there are exceptions, but generally speaking, what we don't see working well on Substack is sort of that low-level, no-name shoe leather reporting, which we need and which is harder to get people excited about. And so Again, I would say, yeah, net positive, but it's not going to fix everything. Yeah, I agree. It's not going to fix everything. What I hope is it gets the attention of the media outlets and causes them to move a little bit to the center. You mentioned the Twitter files. I agree. It's weird. I think it's her and Matt Taibbi and maybe somebody yeah, and a else. a couple other people. They yeah. got access and they had to post it first on Twitter. And I agree. That's weird. I'm sure Elon Musk was doing that to promote his own thing, right? I mean, mm-hmm. but unless it just happened recently, I think that the New York Times and the Washington Post have ignored the Twitter files. So if you have one weird thing that you have to post on Twitter first, the other weird thing is that a lot of outlets just ignore it. Mm, I could be wrong, but I think I read coverage of that elsewhere. Maybe so on them. I didn't follow that story closely, though, I should say. At least I don't think it right away, maybe recently. So let's move into Christian media. We've talked a little bit about the fracturing of the media industry. What about within the Christian movement? I mean, it seems to me like we have fracturing there, too, right? We have World Magazine, and it had some difficulties and a change of personnel. Christianity Today... Then you have like first things, American Reformer, Compaq, a wide variety. I don't think Compaq's Christian. Uh, You don't think? No, not at all. Okay. I mean, go look at their statement. There's nothing explicitly Christian there and they publish atheists regularly. So Harbamari is the person I'm most familiar with there. Yeah, he's super Catholic, but the whole outlet is not. Okay. So nonetheless, there's a fracturing of Christian media. How do you think that that is affecting the church, got Christians in general. Are we just part of the same ecosystem that the larger media fracturing is? Or is there something particularly concerning to you about the fracturing of Christian media? Well, I'd say a couple of things. One is I just was reading History of Dispensationalism. It's a forthcoming book that I'm going to review. And one thing that was super interesting to me and not his main point at all, but he's going over about 200 years of church history, mostly in America. And all these people have like their little newspapers, their little newsletters, like 200 years ago, so many little publications that add their subscriber bases. And so like much more than I would have thought, given, I don't know, the limits of like the mail service at the time, the Mm -hmm. printing technology. And so I think it's always been the case that there's, and honestly, this national consolidation to a few big names, if anything, you could probably make the case that there's more overlap in what we're reading now that we're not reading these little local and denominational publications. We're all reading just a handful of big things. But I also think that at the popular level off of Twitter, I don't know that the average world or Christianity Today reader understands that, is aware that there's a perceived division between those two outlets. I mean, there are some of the same people, right, for both. And so I don't know if you weren't sort of involved in 
like evangelical Twitter fights. I don't know how you would even be aware of that tension because there's a lot of overlap and looking at it from the perspective of someone who is not like within the evangelical subculture, I think they would say that this is a case of narcissism of small differences, that there's just not that much difference. And I suspect there's a lot of readership overlap, which is not to downplay people have their reasons for preferring one or the other. And maybe some of those are very serious reasons, but I don't think that that division is as significant in real life as it seems online. We've been talking about falling trust in institutions and media, and I think they're connected in some ways. So what does media need? Well, we've said just as their business model, they need clicks. And what do institutions need, whether it's the church or government or whatever, they need trust. One needs clicks, one needs trust. And sometimes those are at odds. Now, the one I'm most interested in is as a pastor, I'm most interested in the church, although it applies more broadly than that. But you have a situation where in Christianity Today, they publish their top 20 most read articles and the majority, a solid majority of those, were about the scandals or abuses, problems within the church. And of course, famously, 20 million downloads at one point, probably more than that now on the rise and fall of Mars Hill, which I listened to. I assume everybody did. I don't know. How does the church survive when the church needs trust, media needs clicks? Nobody's accusing the media of lying about any of this stuff. And it's good to expose sin and darkness. That's healthy. We need that accountability. A public accountability can be a good thing. But at the same time, I know what it's like to try to lead a church and have someone come to you and say, well, Mark Driscoll did this. Maybe you're doing it too. Like, well, do you have any evidence I'm doing it? Well, no, but he did it. Maybe you're doing it and I just don't know about it. Can you help me think through that? Have you thought much about institutions need trust, media needs clicks? How does that work together? I mean, the media needs trust too. The media is an institution as well, right? Like that's part of big part of what we're talking about here. I mean, obviously I have a biased position within this, but I don't see, given that the scandals have happened, given that people have done these bad things, I'm not sure what would be a better scenario here, right? Like for Christianity Today to refuse to cover those stories. Is that going to improve things? In that scenario, either people never find out about it and it stays hidden in the dark and the sin is still there, it's still harming people and it goes without consequences, or it gets reported perhaps by secular media who don't understand the nuances of the situation. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that there's a better outcome than Christianity Today covering it and covering it well. Now, as far as why those stories are the most popular, I mean, I think that's obvious. People want to read those stories. That's a reflection of readers and their desires and their curiosities, at least as much as the outlet for covering it. Now, I should mention that I do have a column at CT. I'm not involved in any of those kinds of decisions about what to cover. And so I'm speaking with equally an outside perspective as any reader would. But for example, there was a story they did recently and I think it had to do with John MacArthur's church, some unfortunate allegation. You know, it was going around, it was making the rounds, it was very widely read. And I saw it going around and, you know, I thought that church is in California, doesn't have anything to do with me. It's <laughs> not in my denomination. I will never go there. Uh -huh. I don't know any of these people. I'm glad for the sake of the people involved that this was covered. Like, I'm glad that CT wrote this story, but I don't need to read it mm. myself. 
And so I didn't click on it. And I still don't know what the details are because it's, I don't know, it's, it's good that it's out there again, for the sake of the people involved. I'm glad they covered it, but it's not personally my business. And unless for some reason I have a specific reason why I need to read that story, I don't anticipate that I will. And I think that that is the kind of question that is particularly Christian media consumers, we should be asking ourselves more often, like, I can think that it's good that a report happened and think at the same time, it's not a report I need to know about. I think that is a great perspective and a mature one on your part. It reminds me when I was talking to Derwin Gray on our podcast and asked him about the rise and fall of Mars Hill, he essentially had that response. He'd listened to Mm -hmm. a few of them. I think he said, if I remember right, it turned his stomach and he realized this was not good for his soul and Mm. he stopped listening to them, which is not the same, but similar to what you're saying. And I agree. I'm really clear. I know I already said it once, but really clear. I think public accountability is good. And I think as Christians, we need to confess and lament over the sin of the church. But, and I also, before I say the but, I also don't know what the solution is. So I get that. I don't have a solution to offer. But a Christian magazine, and one more thing, I'm a subscriber to Christianity Today. I give them my money and support them in the best way I can by subscribing to them. Now, finally, for my but, uh, a magazine has to decide what to cover. You can't cover everything. And when 15 of your top 20 stories or 14 of your top 20 stories are about scandal, you have to go, okay, well, have we given faithful coverage, like with our best reporters and the time and all to all these other things that are happening, you know, that are good maybe. And what happens is that the scandals are about big churches because that's what drives interest. I think at least I'm more cynical than you though. It drives interest and most churches aren't big. And so the scandal in their church is going to look really different than it did in a 10, 15, 20, 30,000 member church. So I think we're in a difficult situation. I don't have an answer. I just know trust and clicks. Sometimes the models, sometimes the incentive structures are opposed to one another, and I don't know what to do. In your book, you talk about how to get the trust back, and I thought it was really interesting. You said, we probably shouldn't go the way of facts. Can you explain what you mean by that? Like, it's not facts, but character, if I remember right. Yeah, well, so I mean, there's this fascination with fact checking, and that's something that I think a lot of the people in the media, our instinct is like, okay, we need to do fact checks. When there's false information out there, we need to explain why is this false? What are the actual facts? And that's good. Like, I don't think we should not care about facts. Facts are important. We should want to, you know, set the record straight when the record needs to be set straight. But the argument that I made is that in two senses, I think fact checking is certainly not the sole solution. One is in the sense where you're dealing with say another person whom you think is misguided, coming at them with fact checks when the thing that they're misguided about is all wrapped up in their identity and their community and how they think about themselves and who they're friends with and how they spend their time. Like a fact check just isn't going to win. You cannot set up like here are some tidbits against here's how I think about myself as a person and as an American citizen and as a Christian and as a father and all of these things. The tidbits are not going to win out in that case. It has to be a much more relational project of engagement with that person. The other sense is when we're thinking about ourselves, we've talked a lot about like just the sheer quantity of information that we're encountering. You will never know enough facts to be able to deal with all of that. You just can't. I can't. No one can. We all can know a limited number of things. And so the idea that we're just going to educate ourselves out of our confusion, that's a recipe for being glued to your phone all day and ending up more confused and more dysfunctional than you were before. I mean, really, I think the only option that we have is to think about 
not what do I know here, but what kind of person am I going to be coming into this information environment that for the foreseeable future is going to continue to have these problems of distrust and these problems of institutional breakdown, these problems of sensationalism and confusion. And those are problems that all of us individually, and I include myself in that as someone working in a very relevant industry, are not going to fix. And I don't know that there will be any big institutional fixes, but you can change yourself and your character and your habits and the virtues that you're pursuing as you are stepping into that realm. And so that is where I ended in the book and said, like, these are the things that, you know, if you want something about this to be different, this is where you should be spending your attention and your time and your energies. Yeah, I thought that the way the book ended surprised me. It was fresh. I've never read that anywhere else. And I really enjoyed it and think you're onto something. You're right. We're not going to fact check our way out of this. We're not going to ever be able to know enough to counter all the information someone else has. So character, virtues, relationships seem to be the way out. That's a long-term game, right? That's not a short-term fix, but I think it'd work. And that's a big advantage for it. Is I think I, would actually, so. <laughs> I think it would actually work. Hey, Bonnie, I really appreciate your time. So your book, Untrustworthy, can be found obviously on Amazon or where people buy books. You have a sub stack, mm-hmm. I guess, under your name. And yep. it's Bonnie Christian, K-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. And where else are you? Are you on social media or no? I am, unfortunately, as little as I can be, but I'm into that Facebook marketplace for the furniture. I am on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram all under Bonnie Christian. I would say Twitter is probably the most active of the three, but I've taken it off my phone. So I'm scaling down. Substack is probably where I'm, I would say most accessible and where it's easiest to find. I send out a weekly roundup, which includes here's what I've written at the various outlets I write for. Yeah, I get it. And it's definitely worth looking into subscribing to if it's your thing. I really appreciate your time with us today, Bonnie. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.